Well, the, the ancient Greek philosopher, this is like the 5th century B.C., the philosopher Heraclitus famously said, you can't step your foot into the same river twice. You can't step your foot into the same river twice. Uh, the reason he argued is that between your first step and your second step, the river has changed. It's moved. It's flowed on. The water molecules are reconfigured by your first step into the river. It's not the same river when you dip your foot into it again. In fact, everything, everything Heraclitus argued is flux and change. And there's a strong sense when we look at ourselves and we look at the world around us that we would have to agree with him. We change incessantly. We change our minds. We change our perspectives. We change our location. We change our temperament. We change our interior states, our actions. We're always changing. We oscillate between rest and work. We grow. We decay. Sitting here right now, you are in the process of change on numerous, numerous levels. Mental change. Physical change, we age. Emotional change, intellectual change. We are bundles of flux. As is the world around us. Cultures themselves are just these vast arenas, right, of moving, shifting forces. Always unsettled. Always contested. Never permanently established. Of course, This is relatively obvious, but we delude ourselves about it. We think we're kind of a permanent part of the landscape, sort of like Mount Rushmore. When we are, in fact, evanescent mist. We crave stability, but we find ourselves in a sea of entropy. It seems Heraclitus is right. And in a profound way, he is right. Everything is in motion. Everything is changing. There's a a scene, a well-known scene in uh, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the young girl, Lucy, has a reunion with the Christ figure, the lion, Aslan. And she's surprised to see how much he's grown from the previous summer. In Narnia, the land where Aslan dwells, it's actually been a thousand years. Not one year, as it has been in Lucy's world. But in fact, Aslan hasn't grown at all. And they have this conversation. It goes like this. She says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, that is because you are older, little one. Not because you are, she says. Aslan replies, I am not older, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Lucy thought she had perceived change, even in Aslan. But he, like the triune God revealed in Christ, is unchangeable. He's immutable. She has grown, and she has found the unchangeable God to be bigger It's a parable, I hope. 
for what is happening to us during this series. God may seem bigger to you. I know some of you have told me he seems a little more problematic. That's good. That's part of what making him bigger does. He may seem stranger. He may seem different. But it's we who've moved and changed and grown. Right? We just see more deeply now into the unchanging one. So this morning, then, we who are in a, a sea of flux will look at the immutability of God. That is the fact that God alone, really, does not change. And in fact, it's more than that. It's more than that. Immutability means God cannot change. He's unable to change. So recall, once again, the Westminster Shorter Catechism question. What is God? And the answer is this. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his various attributes. We've already covered God being a spirit, his infinity, and his eternity. And so now we pick up the next attribute, his unchangeability. And by way of introduction, still by way of introduction, I just want to say two things about this. First, God's immutability applies to all his attributes. Hopefully we're used to this by now. He's immutable in his holiness, in his goodness, in his love, and so forth. In fact, I'm sure we all affirm this, maybe without realizing it. So, for example, God is love. Therefore, his love is everlasting and immutable or steadfast. Steadfast is a sort of substitute word for immutable. Psalm 103, for example, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Or think of this, God is truth, and thus his truth, his word, Psalm 119 says, is forever settled in the heavens. Heaven and earth may pass away, we heard this in the gospel lesson, but my words, Jesus says, will never pass away. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. So he is immutable and thus his decrees, his counsels, his plans, his purposes, they stand forever. So again, immutability is not just sort of tucked away in a part of God. Hopefully by now we know God doesn't have parts. The second thing, again, by way of introduction is a little reflection will show us just how necessary, how important and crucial it is that God be immutable. Now, this may not be an issue for anybody in this room, but it's it's been contested throughout the world in all of 20th century theology. People do not like the immutability of God. But a mutable God, a mutable, changeable God could not be immeasurably fully perfect. For if he changed for the better, right, that would imply some defect being corrected. And if he changed for the worse, then he would become imperfect. So mutability, this idea that God changes, it is not compatible with any of God's perfections. 
A mutable God could not be simple. He could not be infinite. He could not be eternal. He could not be independent. Here's Herman Bavink, who I've quoted a few times in this series. He's a very important 19th, 20th century Dutch theologian. He says this, Those who predicate any change whatsoever of God, whether with respect to his essence, knowledge, or will, diminish all his attributes, his independence, his simplicity, eternity, omniscience, omnipotence. This robs God, Bavink says, of his divine nature, and notice this, and it robs our religion of its firm foundation and its assured Comfort. We will come back to this, this comfort part. So the Christian tradition has uniformly held, at least until recent times, that God is, and this is somewhat philosophical language, but it's important to grasp it. We have held that God is fully actual. That God is pure act, meaning there is no potential in God. And if there's no potential in God, like you have potential, right? We all have potential to change or grow. There's no potential in God. He has an absolutely full personality. And if there's no potential, there's no potential for change. And yet, we assert this, and it's crucial to get this right here. We, we do not assert that God is immutable because we think of him as inert, or static, or stoic, like a block of wood, or a block of ice, right? The word immutable can, in our minds, sort of evoke these kinds of ideas. Immutable seems kind of like, you know, not very dynamic. Immutable seems kind of boring, right? But this, rather, what's going on here is, because God is the great I am, the self-existent one, without need, without dependency, he is wholly alive, fully dynamic, infinitely rich, replete in his life and in his light and in his love. Right? Full, delightfully, infinitely, perfectly blessed and full in his personal communion as Father, Son, and Spirit. Because that is the case Change is not only impossible for us, it is theologically repugnant. So with that, we're going to briefly look at God's immutability under four headings. The first is ontological immutability. That just means God's immutable in his being. (coughs) Being. Second, ethical immutability. That just means God's immutable in his relations. So you could call the first one being, the second one relations. Third, apparent change, and fourth, redeeming change. So first, God's ontological immutability. Again, we are asserting that God is unlike all the flux around us. In fact, this immutability is one way of just affirming in a clear way the difference between God and every created thing. We are asserting that he is unchanging in his being, in his essence, he doesn't change. I've already alluded to this great I am from Exodus 3, which demands that God just be. Right? And that means that he, who is isness, right? he is isness, has no becoming, no flux in his essence. 
So let's look at one of our New Testament texts from James chapter 1. It's a classic place for, for going to on this question. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So notice that, right? No variation, no shadow due to change. Because God is the fullness of light, he does not cast any shadows, shadows of change. Or we could use the Old Testament text from Psalm 102, which says this, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Well, surely those are unchangeable, right? No, the psalmist says they will perish, but you remain. So notice, in Psalm 102, the psalmist is intentionally contrasting God's remaining sameness with absolutely everything that's been made. So again, he's breaking our mind's natural desire to kind of correlate God to us and to the creation. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same. And your years have no end. Right? They pass away like all mutable things. But notice, they pass away, but the psalmist says to God, you are the same. It's a direct affirmation that in contrast to the creation, God is immutable. So, this text, by the way, Psalm 102, it's cited in Hebrews chapter 1. Of Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who like the Father and the Spirit is also immutable. Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity, Hebrews tells us later in Hebrews, Hebrews 13, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's not a reference to Jesus' human nature. His human nature grows and changes like your human nature. That's a reference to Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. God is then, ontologically, on the level of his being, his essence, his character, immutable, unchanging. Again, not because he's not relatable, but because he's infinitely rich in his life. So second, let's look at what I'm calling here ethical immutability. This is God's unchanging faithfulness with respect to his covenant or to his sovereign purposes. A key text here is the other New Testament text we read from Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, let me read a part of it. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, so notice that language, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's before us. Right? Notice, the writer to the Hebrews thinks that the unchangeable character of God, his unchangeable nature and purposes, is for us strong encouragement. It's a kind of refuge for you. It's a place to hold fast and set your hope in the midst of a world of flux. The text affirms our first point, God is immutable in his being. It does that by saying it's impossible for God to lie. He cannot 
change his essence or his nature or his character. But it also says he took an oath to convince us even further of the unchanging character of his purposes. Right? And this refers to his covenant promises made to Abraham in the context. So here, notice this, both in himself and in his actions toward us, he is the steadfast, immovable rock. And this is repeatedly asserted throughout the Old Testament. You could see it in Malachi 3. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I mean, if God did change, it would be very, very bad news for us. Again, both aspects of immutability are here. God himself doesn't change. Therefore, he doesn't change his covenant purposes towards you. Same thing in Numbers 23. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. God doesn't lie, nor does he change his mind. He has said he will do it. He will do it. So because he doesn't change, God fulfills his purposes. So you know what that means? That means your salvation depends on God's immutability. Right? When you embrace a mutable God, as some, as some are doing in the 20th century, you're going to end up with no God at all. You're going to undermine Christian salvation. If he were not immutable, he could revoke his covenant purposes. Our whole assurance, our whole confidence, our whole certainty, our whole perseverance rests right here. That's what Bobbing said. You know the, the text from Exodus 3, I am who I am. That is sometimes translated, it's disputed, but it's sometimes translated as I will be who I will be. Both are valid insights into the immutability of God. He is who he is, and thus he shall be or act toward us as he shall act. The first, his essence, is foundational for the second, his purposes or his actions. So this is beautifully put in our closing hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. You all know this. You all affirm this. We just tend to do it in more familiar language. Great is thy faithfulness, right? Thou changest not. Thy compassions they fail not. The second type of immutability, God's compassions, his purposes, depends on the first, his being. Right, So we could sing, thou changest not in thy being, therefore thy compassions or thy actions toward us fail not. God is immutable in his being, he's immutable in his purposes or his ethical life. But this raises a problem. There's been problems all along with these sermons on the doctrine of God, right? There are always some cluster of texts somewhere that you think, well, what about that? And, and I'm calling this apparent change, right? We know that there are texts which state things like God repents. He repented of making man at the time of the flood. He regretted making Saul the king of Israel. So what do we make of that? <laughs> well, I, I'd like to address it through the saga of Saul. In, in a chapter, uh, 1 Samuel 15, a chapter twice mentions, in that chapter Two times it says God regretted that he made Saul king. But here's the interesting thing. In that same chapter, the text says this. The glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. 
Hmm. The glory of Israel does not lie change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. So clearly, God repents without repenting. He's not a human being. He doesn't change his mind the way we do. And yet there's something called repentance or changing his mind about Saul. Whatever it is, it means he repents or changes his mind in such a way that his eternal plan is flawlessly executed and his covenant purposes are upheld. That much is sure. I mean, think about it. Think about it in the case of Saul. It was decreed long before Saul that the kingship would come from Judah, not from Saul's tribe of Benjamin. And the Christ, the Davidic king, descended from Judah, was slain in the immutable plan of God from before the foundation of the world. So changing his mind about Saul is something like changing my stated uh, purposes, but not changing my actual covenant purposes. So he may change his stated purpose, but never in such a way that entails change in him or change in his covenant fidelity. So in any event, this language of God repenting is a way of God stooping to us and accommodating our weakness. And in the case of Saul, it's meant, among other things, to express God's hatred of sin, his righteous opposition to the current state of affairs. Right? Think about it. To take this language of God changing his mind literally would be to destroy the classical doctrine of God in its entirety. Right? It would be to just empty the church out completely today. Right? Oh, God made man and then he was sorry he did it? And you want to take that to mean the same thing that happens when we do something and then we're sorry? Well, who's going to worship that God? But you will destroy the whole Christian faith if you don't understand these repenting texts right. So finally, fourth and finally, redeeming change. So, in the fullness of time, the immutable God becomes man taking on a mutable human nature. But he who as divine is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as a human, grows and learns and weeps and suffers and dies. And now he's raised in immutable glory. And it's by doing this that Jesus redeems our lives, our lives of change and decay. Right? Paul refers to this when he says he's going to liberate the creation from futility from its bondage to decay and death. From this mutability which is bound up with death and disintegration. Right now, Jesus, in glorified humanity, has an unchanging, notice that, unchanging priesthood. And he secures for you an unchanging inheritance. Indeed, you and I, we shall even partake of a kind of limited creaturely immutability, ourselves. Because in heaven, we will be immutably blessed, beyond probation, beyond the possibility of failing or sinning. 
There's a wonderful line in the, in the confession of faith on this that says, In glory, the will of the redeemed will be perfectly and immutably. Right? You've got your mutable will now, right? Your will fluctuates. But in, in glory, your will be immutably free, fixed to do the good alone. You are going to participate in the resurrection, in the very immutability of God in a creaturely way. Because you're going to be fixed freely in the good. All the corruption that comes from creation's mutability, right? The movement and the rhythms of creation. All that corruption is destined to be healed. Change itself is going to be redeemed. And all the vulnerabilities and the insecurities of this age will be passed. So it turns out that immutability is not only the ground of our assurance, it's our destiny. And that, of course, is just another way of saying God is the origin and the goal of Christian existence. Right? All of this change will be redeemed, and all the vulnerabilities and insecurities that we have because of the flux will be passed. Until then, Richard Baxter, the Puritan pastor, says he describes our, our plight in this flux and our confession of the one with whom there is no shadow of turning. Here's Baxter. Our houses may be burned. Our goods may be consumed or stolen. Our clothes will be worn out. Our treasure here may be corrupted. But our God is unchangeable, the same forever. Our laws and customs may be changed. Our governors and privileges changed. Our company, our employments and habitation changed. But our God has never changed. Our estates may change from riches to poverty, and our names that were honored may incur disgrace. Our health may quickly turn to sickness and our ease to pain, but still our God is unchangeable forever. Our friends are inconstant and may become our enemies. Our peace may be changed into war and our liberty into slavery, but our God doth never change. Time will change customs, families, and all things here but it changes not our God, end quote. He who is immutable in his being is the one whose faithfulness, whose compassions fail not. And thus he alone, God alone, is the one in whom we rest and our futures rest secure. I noticed this morning that the uh, the collect, which is the short prayer in the, the Book of Common Prayer for this Sunday in Lent, gets at this, because in that little prayer, they pray to God, Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of our hearts. Right? You, everything can look placid and unchanged on the outside, but we who know our own hearts and wills and affections knows there's a turbulency of change on the inside. We've, we have unruly wills and affections, right? And, and the... Uh, the prayer goes on to pray that, that among the swift and varied changes of the world, among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may, may surely be fixed. So that's already, we already participate of God's immutability. When God makes you faithful, steadfast, right, fixed, you are partaking of his immutability. 
in a, in a t- small creaturely way. We, the prayer is that our hearts may be fixed where true joys are found. Right? This we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Amen.